So, we are today just going to jump right into verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Chuck Smith always told us, whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And the reason it's there, it's because it's always talking about everything that I've said is important to understanding the next point. What has Paul said in this chapter 2 as we've gone through it the last few weeks? Well, in verse 13, he said that Christ has brought us near to God. In verse 14, that he has become our peace. And again in verse 14, he has broken down the wall between the Jew and the Gentile. And in verse 15, he's abolished the enmity that once existed in, in this cultural battle between the Jews and, and living as a Jew and being circumcised and keeping the law and, and the certain regulatory diet. And the Gentiles who were just pagans that, that are not to be circumcised. Before, you had to be proselyted to become, if you were a Gentile, and one of the first things to become considered to be able to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you had to get circumcised. Then you had to learn the law and follow the diet and so forth, which is very difficult in Gentile cultures. 16, he has reconciled us to God. And in verse 17, he's given us access to the Father. So you guys get it. You're no longer strangers. The word stranger literally is you're passing through. You don't have permanent roots. And he's saying here, you're, you're just not here temporarily on a visa. You are here permanently. And as so, he says you have a permanent building. And we're going to actually learn that we are that permanent building, the temple. But also, in a different analogy, we're stones next to other stones making up the building. So there's a couple of analogies going back and forth with the temple. Sometimes the whole temple is us, and then sometimes the whole temple is God, and, and we are living stones in that temple. And then also foreigners. And, and he says, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens. I, I like the translation that says, strangers are aliens. You're not aliens here. You are full-fledged citizens. No second-class citizenship. And uh, you're not strangers to the covenants and all the promises of God. You're heirs. And so, in the Jewish culture, when a Gentile got proselyted, he could never actually go into the place that a full Jew could go. He could only go to the outer parts of the temple, the outer courts. And he was limited on what he could do, but he also was limited on what promises applied to him. It was only a partial group of promises that applied to the Gentiles proselyted into Judaism. The Jews, all the promises applied to them. The Gentiles, some of them. And not so in Christianity. This is not a proselytization of Gentiles coming into Judaism. In 2 Peter, and this was difficult for Peter to get there, it was quite a, a growing time for Peter to get to this point. Because he didn't get that Gentiles should be equal. God had to do a powerful supernatural work in Acts 10. You can read about it. But years later, he writes in his second letter in chapter 1, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceeding, exceedingly great, I love this, and precious, I love that, promises. Oh, are the promises of God great and precious to you? That through these great and precious promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. The law could never help a Jew do that. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. God has made so many wonderful promises to Israel. But now all the promises of God 
are ours as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. I, I love reading Deuteronomy 28. This is where God says, if you will listen to my word and obey it, the blessings are yours. God's going to open up the windows of heaven and he's going to, it's the, the works of like a lion taking a gazelle. The blessings are going to get tackle, tackle you and take you to the ground. You're going to be blessed in your home. You're going to be blessed outside your home. You're going to be blessed in the city, blessed in the country, blessed in, in all the animals you own and, and blessed in all the fields you plant. And, and he says, the enemies will attack you, but they'll scatter several different ways. They'll never have success against you. And, and the chapter 28 is a long chapter. And he keeps saying, you won't handle, be able to handle the blessings. Of course, there was a strong caveat, if you also obey. Have you guys noticed that once you become Christians, it's still very hard to obey? <laughs> I'm so glad in the New Testament, God doesn't say, I have all these blessings if you qualify. Because I would find that most days out of the year, I wouldn't qualify. And the days that I think I would qualify, I'm probably deceiving myself. And I'm actually sort of self-righteous, which is a sin in and of itself. Matter of fact, it's probably a much bigger sin. Matter of fact, maybe it's the greatest sin. Being self-righteous, saying, God, you owe me. I've had an amazing week. I fought sin and I obeyed you and I read the Bible every day and I even went to Wednesday night service, not just Sunday. And, and uh, so now I'm going to pray and you owe me big, the lottery. I should win this Friday night. It's not that way. God counts us faithful even when we're not. Whoa, because that's his nature. The prodigal son coming home, the father said, man, I would love to have you back, but you don't qualify. He didn't qualify, did he? But because of the relationship he had, father to son, he would never be able to disqualify himself. No matter how great his sins were, and his sins were great. But he was still received back with what? All the blessings of the Father were upon him. Second Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, All the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Let that sink in. There's your memory verse this week. Uh, I'll give you a short one. All the promises of God are yes and what? Amen. amen. So be it, Lord. It's the end. All the promises of God, they're yours. Nothing else to be said. But, but, but hold it. Where's the fine print? There is no fine print. Well, what's the footnote say? You know, what's the qualification process to get all those promises of God? You know what? It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. It's God's love. I had a horrible day yesterday. Big sins. Big struggles. Well, today... Lamentation says God's mercies are new every morning. Just like the puppy you kicked yesterday. He's licking your face the next morning. He's forgotten all about that. And he's acting like there's never been a history. It's just today's a brand new day. You and me, and I'm happy to see you and let me lick your face. And ah! Aren't puppies great? I need a puppy. A comfort puppy. But unfortunately, my landlord says I can't have animals. And, uh, but how we need to get this. And we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are equal to all Jews. Boy, we looked at this last week. That Abraham's children weren't always the physical children. Ishmael wasn't counted as one of Abraham's children of promise. Esau, twins with Jacob, but yet Esau wasn't counted as a child of promise. Which children's were? Isaac. Through Isaac, your descendants shall continue. Through Jacob, 
Oh, well, Jacob was such an honorable, wonderful man. Of course, God chose him. True? Esau was far more honorable than Jacob, that hill catcher. But yet we discover that Jacob had faith in God, even though he was such a scoundrel, that, that God could work out his scoundrelness. And God did. And his name became Israel. The nation today is called, not Abraham. That makes sense to me. Where do you live? The nation of Abraham. Nope. The nation of Isaac. There you go. The nation of King David. Now, what's the nation that has the passport today? One of the most sneaky, hill catchers, conniving scoundrels. But it's not called the nation of Jacob, is it? It's called the nation of one who is governed by God. That's not true of that nation yet. But after the tribulation period, God himself, Jesus himself, will come and rule and reign there. And it will be a nation and the whole world governed by God. So you're full-fledged citizens. Not second class in any way. Why? Because you're members of the household of God. You're God's child. So imagine if you got taken away somehow to a foreign land as a baby, and now you're an adult and you find out that you're the prince of another country. And you come back and you prove that. What happens? Even though you've never lived in that country since you were a baby born and quickly taken away, now that you can prove that you are the heir, you become a citizen. Why? Because you are a member of that family. And all rights of citizenship is given to you. That's us. We were aliens. We were strangers. We were rascals. We were sinners. But when Jesus Christ died and rose again, we believed in him. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and God receives us to as many as receive him. To them he gives the right to become children of God. And God receives us as members of the family, not just a citizen of the country. Do, do we get the difference? We are not just citizens of the country. We are citizens of the royal family and we're members because we're children. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. Let's try that again. Notice how I bolden that in your notes. So that's to help you sometimes to know that you need to chime in. Here we go. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. Man, you guys got soul. Woo. And if children, now the word if, it's the same word in the Greek as since. And a lot of times, if you use the word since, it makes more sense. And some modern translations pick up on this and will actually say it that way. And so in verse 17, it says if, but really it should say since we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and notice this here, Joint heirs with Christ. When we go to heaven, Jesus doesn't have one inheritance as the son. And then we have a secondary, lesser inheritance, but also an inheritance from the father. That's not the case. When we go to heaven, Jesus gives us his inheritance. And we are joint heirs. We're shares of his inheritance. Well, Jesus is perfect in righteousness. He makes us perfect in righteousness. Well, Jesus is a full-fledged son. So are we. Jesus is loved by the Father. So are we. Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. It says we, in, in chapter 2, we saw that we are seated together with Christ in heavenly places. You say, well, it sounds like there's more than two thrones on the left. You know what? Again, this is where our 
corporeal world breaks down as we go into an incorporeal world, that the physical world we have is limited to understanding the spiritual world. And so, yes, we have to have physical chairs, but yet we know that God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. And, and so does he have a literal throne? Well, these are the pictures that we get because that's the only way we can think. We see in part, we know in part, but yet we're going to discover that there is no second-class citizenship in heaven. That we are equal to Jesus. And we just studied last Wednesday night that Jesus forever calls us his brethren. He told the apostles, you are my friends. You are in me. Remember John 17? I've been quoting this a lot lately. Father, Jesus prays, as I am in you and you are in me, that we would be in them and they in us in a perfect oneness or a perfect unity. Explain that. I can't. I, I cannot explain that to you. But it's wonderful. I understand what it means. And it means in no way, shape, or form are we even a lesser citizen than Jesus we are not a lesser son, a child of God, than Jesus himself. I mean, wouldn't it have been enough if God just said, hey, you're not going to hell? That would be enough. But yet he says you're coming to heaven. Well, you're, you're on the outskirts of town. You're living in a little barn, you know, a long way from the royal city. Who cares? I mean, it's heaven. It's too good for me. No, 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 you're, you're living in the city. Me? Well, you're actually living in the throne room with God. He's the king of kings, and you are a king unto the king of kings. Wow. Well, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We are built on a doctrinal foundation. Now, this again has two different analogies going on with the same concept. We're going to find that a foundation here of the apostles and the prophets is the foundation of doctrine. But then we also are going to discover that Jesus Christ himself is the foundation and we are the building. So, in one sense, the foundation he's talking about is the doctrine of the apostles. Another time he's going to say it's Jesus himself is the foundation. But here this is talking about the foundation of an unchanging doctrine. It will not be added to. This is why it says built past tense. It's not saying it's in the process of being built. Jude 3, that little tiny book, has a powerful verse in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, our foundational doctrines, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, fight for the doctrine that was, listen, how many times? Once for all delivered, notice the past tense there, to the saints. We have a canonized Bible. If you take a quick look at Genesis, it starts in the beginning. You look at Revelation 22, it clearly ends. <laughs> you know, if, if it sort of started in the book of Leviticus and it sort of ended without telling us what the end was, it was just sort of, you know, we ended with the book, well, God bless you all, brethren. That was the last sentence of the Bible, we would go, we're, we're sort of missing a few chapters in the front, and we're sort of left out. I mean, Paul tells us, and John tells us there's something out there in the future, but it's, it's just unknown. That's not what you get. You get a clear beginning in Genesis. You get a clear picture of us throughout eternity. All the pieces of the puzzle are put in place as we see that. And so, 
It's the apostles and the prophets and their doctrine that is our final foundation. We're not to add to that and we're not to take away from that. Boy, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and Proverbs 30, it has some strong words about don't add to, don't take away from. But in the New Testament, from Jesus himself, he gives this final, in the last chapter of the Bible, talking, I believe, about the whole Bible, don't add to or take away. It's a completed, finished doctrine. In Revelation 22, verse 18 and 9, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. Who's going to get the worst punishment? Those who tamper with God's word. And in verse 19, now he says, not adding to, but he says, taken away from. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the book of life from the holy city and from all the things which are written in this book, the tree of life, the water, all of the things. So Paul makes it clear that the foundational doctrine is set. It's come through the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself is also the foundation. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9 through 11, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's field. You are God's building. Several analogies happening there. And in verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Talking about doctrinal truth. And another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Because now he makes it clear, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, notice the past tense. Jesus is the foundation, so all doctrine that's taught is consistent with his nature. It's consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Our God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus Christ is the foundation. And as we talk about him and, and talk about who he is and who he isn't and what he likes and what he hates and, and the truth about him and the truth about the spiritual world, that also becomes a part of the foundation. Jesus and his nature, his word. And it's on the apostles and the prophets. Now, this can be a little bit confusing because there's 16 different prophets listed in the New Testament. And the word apostle literally means sent one. So today there are some denominations, some churches that say, oh, they're an apostle. I guess in a sense, a missionary is an apostle. But no, by no means is he an apostle in the same sense as these ones handpicked by Jesus. Paul being the 12th, one out of time, replacing Judas. But these guys, not all of the apostles, were specially given a prophetic gift to write scripture. So out of those main 12 apostles, and then extra, like James is the actual half-brother of Jesus. He writes the book of James. And then we have Matthew and Mark who were followers of the apostles and wrote the words of the apostles, but they were the ones writing the scripture. So it's sort of interesting how God works this out. David Guzik says this, In this sense of laying a foundation of supremely authoritative revelation for all God's people, there is no more apostles and prophets today. The foundation is already set in the lesser sense that may be an apostle or prophet today, but not in the sense that Paul means here. The same with prophets. These, is he referring to the Old Testament prophets and the book of the prophets? I, I don't think so. It sounds like he's referring to prophets within the New Testament. And I think he's referring to that prophetic gift. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, chapters 12 through 14, Paul tells the church, pray for the gift of prophecy. It's so edifying. And these guys were writing scripture by the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, because he, he actually 
describes this mystery of how Scripture was written. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It's really hard in the English to translate the private interpretation. But what it actually means, it doesn't come from them. It's not their ideas. It's not their inspiration. It doesn't originate. That would be the best translation. That no scripture prophetically given, all scripture is prophetic given, doesn't originate from any individual human being. But, he goes on to say, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, or wrote, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is why 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. It's the same term when he breathed into Adam and he became a living being. God breathed from God's mouth. All scripture was given. There's so much written on that. Alford in his commentary says this, Those who ranked next to the apostles in the government of the church, they were not in every case distinct from the apostles. The apostleship probably always included the gift of prophecy so that all apostles themselves might likewise also have been prophets. Interesting that in heaven, this is the foundation. Act literally. In, in Revelation 21.14, Now the wall of this city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Interesting. So the words of the prophets and the apostles doctrine constitute the foundation of understanding of God and our Christian faith. Nothing should be added to, nothing should be taken away. And then, of course, the actual foundation. All these doctrines originate from Jesus himself, his nature, his words, his very being, his unchanging essence, his unchanging being. All of these doctrines come from his nature Jesus says that himself in John 5.39, you search the scriptures, he says to the Pharisees, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which what? Testify of me. Genesis to Revelation are all speaking of God and the work of the Messiah. In Hebrews 10.7, I believe Paul's writer, he quotes from the Old Testament, he said, Behold, I come, this is Jesus speaking, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. When I went through the Billy Graham crusade discipleship group before the crusade, one of the powerful things was every chapter of the Bible speaks of Jesus. And they give the story out of Acts chapter 7. And eight, when Philip was translated, he literally beamed me up, Scotty, and was put over on a highway after evangelizing. And here comes an Ethiopian eunuch. There's a large population of Ethiopian Jews today, believed to be through the relationship of Solomon and um, some woman, uh, you know, it, it sort of differs there. But today, you have tens of thousands of very black, tall, good-looking Ethiopians that are considered full-blooded Israelites. The DNA shows it, but uh, also they have followed um, a Jewish lifestyle for thousands of years. Interesting. When God said, I'll scatter you to the four corners of the world. He really meant it. But um, it's interesting there that this black Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading just randomly the Bible, and he was on a very difficult book of Isaiah. And he was open to Isaiah 53. And Philip says, hey, can I join you? And he gets up on, I guess, his chariot. And he goes, yeah. 
He said, do you understand what you're reading? He goes, it's, no, I have no idea. And it says, from that passage he was reading, Philip preached Jesus. I love that. And Jesus himself is also the chief cornerstone. Solomon says the notes in this, that denotes the stone placed in an extreme corner so as to bind the other stones in the building together, the most important stone in the structure, and the one which is stability depends upon. Wood says the cornerstone literally means the tip of the angle. It refers to the cornerstone as binding stone that holds the whole structure together. Often the royal name was inscribed on it. In the east, it was considered to be even more important than the foundation. So understand, they put one stone in place that has several different strange angles. But yet they use that stone to make all the wall straight and, and the angle of the building. Everything's lined up by that first stone. Well, Jesus is that chief cornerstone. There's a story in the oral tradition of the Jews. And it comes up when they read Psalms 118, which we'll read here in a minute, verse 22. The stones that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And there is a story that says in the building of the first temple. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, Solomon said, no sound, not the sound of any hammers, not even the sound of a trowel when you're putting cement on one stone can be heard. And so they quarried all of the stones a good distance away on the other side of Jerusalem. And then they would bring them as quietly as they could and put them in place. Well, they got their first delivery of several stones, and there was one stone that nobody knew what to do with. And it, again, it's hard for this to imagine. It's a mystery. And it sets there, and it sets there. And over time, they end up rolling it down the hill, and it gets covered by, by weeds. And some times go by, and they say, we are lacking a stone. And they send to the quarry and they said, no, we sent that to you. And so they begin to look around and sure enough, they find this odd looking stone at the bottom and they then put it in place, but it didn't really fit. It was sort of not doing what it was supposed to do. And so this is the stone the builders rejected. And the Bible tells us that that was a prophecy of Jesus, that Jesus and his nature and his ways, which were not religious. If you study the Gospels, the one thing is religious people hated that he wasn't religious like them. They didn't, he didn't go through their colleges. He didn't go through their, you know, their, their swamp, the Jerusalem swamp. <laughs> he wasn't a part of the swamp, and, and, and he's an outsider. And, and he, he comes in, and, and he doesn't fit. And he's clearly an unmovable object, and the people listen gladly. But boy, was he irritating to the religious establishment. He didn't fit. The first stone that should have been in place and everything based off of him was rejected. Peter says it plainly. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? We know what everybody else is saying. And Peter said in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal us to you, but my father's in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, what rock? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Those two things together. I will build my church. Not on Peter being the Pope with the grand poobah hat and all these robes and gold. I mean, can you imagine Peter going from Galilee to being wheeled around on a cart by eight guys? And it's so opposite of Jesus to imagine that he set up that system. It's, it's unbelievable. And far as I know, uh, he didn't speak Italian. <laughs> so, 
Boy, we, we have so many prophecies on this. Isaiah 28, Psalms 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. And um, in Luke, we, we begin to discover that Jesus says, I am the stone and blessed are those who don't stumble over me. Remember John the Baptist? He was in prison. And he's like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Get me out of here. And Jesus sends back word. Hey, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, and John said, well, do I look for, am I going to keep calling you the Messiah or am I going to look for a different Messiah? And Jesus sent word back and tell John, blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. I'm not going to necessarily be the Messiah you need in this very moment. But I am the unchanging Messiah. And so Luke 20 says, He who looked on them said, What is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then Jesus adds, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whoever it falls on, he'll grind him to powder. In 1 Peter 2, 4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That you also are living stones, being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. How important is that? Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So in verse 21 now, Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we just saw where Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5, says, just like Jesus was a precious plan of God, so each of us are also chosen by God. Jesus was chosen by God as the chief cornerstone, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and and all religions get mad at that stone. (laughs) If you start getting religious, guess what? You'll start getting mad at that stone, because that stone is not going to change. It's not going to move. You need to change. You need to move. Your ideas of Christ are wrong. That's why you're frustrated. Jesus is who he is. He's unchangeable. He's wonderful. He's precious. He's God's choice. And now we are all growing as living stones and being built into a spiritual house, not a literal house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being fitted together as he pleases. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, now God has set the members, now it's not talking about stones, but members, each one of them in the body, now this is saying we're a hand, a foot, an eye, an ear, different analogy, but the same concept. Each of them is placed in the body, living stones by each other, just as he pleased. So if you're saying, well, God, you need to put me somewhere else. I'm on the west wall, but I want to be on the east wall. I'm a finger, but I want to be a toe. And you really made a mistake here. Because these stones around me, ah, I don't like them. But I'm looking across or at the west wall. Oh, I like those stones. And it's, I'm basically the same shape. It'll fit over there. Come on, God. You're, this is uncomfortable where you put me. What does God say? I placed you as ordained as powerfully as I placed the cornerstone. And it's you that need to change. I didn't make a mistake. But, but the stone next to me is rubbing me raw. You need, you need some shaving over there. That's why. 
Well, this stone I'm on keeps wiggling around and it won't sit still. I, I know, it's you not being flexible enough. It's not them, it's you. Well, this stone above me, it's not as glorious as I am. I should be higher. You know what? You are glorious. And you're right where you're supposed to be. Wow. Because that's our culture. Our culture is, I'm uncomfortable. I'll just go find a more comfortable place. Especially here in, in the OC area. You, you guys got more Calvary chapels than sand on the beach. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's like, I'll just go to another Calvary chapel. Where is it? Across the street. <laughs> next door. A catty corner. And if you don't like that one, there's one next to that. And next to that, it's the same distance. You see, there's got to be a sense. We get that way with our spouse. We get that way with our kids, don't we? I know you're only 17, but you can leave. I count you as an adult. Get out. You're irritating me. You're messing with me. You're quenching me. You're making my home feel like a prison because you're so different than us. Yes, God doesn't make mistakes, does he? And as he fits everything together, as he desires, this building becomes a holy temple in the Lord. The whole building, every individual stone placed just the way God wants it, all perfectly angled off the cornerstone. And this becomes, number one, a holy temple. It's a building. It tells us that church is a building perfectly designed by the great architect. It's not a haphazard pile of stones randomly dumped in a field. God arranges the church for his own glory and purpose. Secondly, the holy temple the holy temple is a dwelling place. It tells us that the church is a dwelling place, a place where God lives. It is never to be empty house. That's virtually a museum with no one living inside. The church is to be both the living place of God and a living place for his people. Thirdly, the holy temple is a temple. It tells us that the church is a temple, holy, set apart to God. We serve there as priests, offering spiritual sacrifices of our lips and our hearts, our praise to God. What's the New Testament? Morning oblation. What's the New Testament? Evening oblation. What happens when the priests get together to sacrifice and the masses come in? In the New Testament, it's praises. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, by him let us continually offer this sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And I guess in a sense, I just thought of it this morning. It's not my notes. But Romans 12, we give ourselves as a living sacrifice acceptable to God as well. Well, verse 22, and in case you don't know, that's the last verse for today, so we're getting closer. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 22, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Important last three words. We are being built together. It's a team. <laughs> it's a family. It's one building. Well, I'll just go be a stone by myself over there. Well, you're not a building. You're just a stone sitting over there. That's nothing. That's a nothing. It, it doesn't work that way. Well, I don't go to church. God, you know, what I have is a personal thing with God. Don't, don't bug me about that. All churches are full of hypocrites. I know, I'm one. I go to one. You come, we have an extra hypocrite. Yeah, I, I, I wish it was different. I, w I wish we were living as holy as we know God wants us to. I wish we were in ourselves righteous but we're not. That's why Christ gave us that righteousness. But we're to be together. And you say, well, here's a bunch of struggling Christians all built together. That's what I see. The whole wall there is, you know, not a bunch of holy people like Jesus. They're not a bunch of perfect people. They have problems with their marriage. They have problems with their kids. They got problems with their finances. They got problems with their health. They got, you know, they're sort of, that guy's sort of an irritating guy, period. You know, why would I go to that church? Yeah, that, that's the church. We're, we're a bunch of prodigals. We're a bunch of 
Mary Magdalene's that once had seven demons in us <laughs> and we got cast out. Yeah, we are the woman at the well. We're the woman caught in adultery. We're, we're the traitor Zacchaeus that was taxing his own people. Yeah, that's, that's us. And that's beautiful to God. And if you can see it spiritually, you'll see it's beautiful to God. But the fact that you're looking at it from a human standpoint, the world will know we're Christians by how we love one another. Well, Adam Clark says this about this beautiful building, the temple, the church. He says this, there's nothing as noble as the church, seeing that it's the temple of God. There's nothing so worthy of reverence, seeing God who dwells in it. There's nothing so ancient since the patriarchs and the prophets worked to build it. There's nothing so solid since Jesus Christ is the foundation of it. There's nothing so high since it reaches as high as the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's nothing so perfect and well-proportioned since the Holy Spirit is the architect. There's nothing more beautiful because it's adorned with the building of stones of every age, every place, every people, from the highest kings to the lowest peasants, which with the most brilliant scientists and the simplest of believers. There is nothing more spacious since it is spread above or over the whole earth, takes it all who are washed in their robes, made them with the white blood of the lamb. And then there's nothing so divine since it is the living building animated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It's the dwelling place of God. Living stones are all over the world of different tongues, of different cultures, of different nations, of different people. But we are all equally been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've all equally been filled with the Holy Spirit. We are all equally adopted into the house of God. And I'll tell you what, I know some of you had a chance to go to other parts of the world. You find these Christians... You don't know them. You don't speak the same language. You don't have the same culture. And you feel like one with them, don't you? You feel like, I've known you my whole life. And, and even, you got to catch yourself. You know, hey, you start talking to them because you, you think they speak the same language. It's like you've been, every conversation you had is through a translator. But you're just so one with them that it just sort of, you forget about the fact that you speak different languages. And it's not just our time. We've got stones that go back 2,000 years and 1,000 years and 500 years. We're in the same building as Abraham. We're in the same building as the Apostle Paul. Wow, what a wonderful temple to be a part of. It's a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In John 14, 23, Jesus said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word in the My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So I told you earlier, the temple is a combined, but also the temple's individual. You individually, in another analogy, are the temple of God because God's spirit dwells in you, the holy of holies. In 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. How do we know we're Dwelling with God because his spirit lives in us. And he would, his spirit only dwells in the temple. In 1 John 4, 16, And we know, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And in, he who abides in love, what? Abides in God. And God in him. How is this? In the spirit. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Your body individually is the temple. There's two different words in the Greek, heron, which is talking about the outer courts, the general vicinity. But then there's another word, naos, and it's talking about the sanctuary, the holy of holies, the way we would understand it. Your body is the holy of holies and because the Holy Spirit is in you. Also in 1 Corinthians 13, 16, do you not know that you... And this is in the plural ye. This is where the old King James helps sometimes. The is singular, ye is plural. All of you together in plural are the naos, the holy of holies of God. 
and the Spirit of God dwells in you. So there's two separate analogies going on with the temple. There's times that we need to just say, hold it, I am the Holy of Holies. And I therefore need to remember my body is not my own. It's God. And I can't bring some ugly greed, anger, bitterness, lust into the Holy of Holies. Can't, can't exist. The two can't exist together. <clears throat> Paul, though, is not talking about a physical building, is he? I, I've grown up in a denomination and, and people would say, shh, we're going into the sanctuary. <laughs> and I remember as a kid, you know, talking, <gasps> you're in the sanctuary. You're talking too loud. Little kid runs by, stop. We see this part of our church is different. This is our sanctuary, our temple. How off, how wrong. <laughs> it's not a human building. It's a spiritual building. You know, you, know, you know why the world in essence is so messed up today? Because they have been brainwashed through Darwin saying everything evolved and it's all about science. Forget about the soul, forget about the spirit. All we got to do is give people a good environment to grow up in with food and clothing and education and, and you will see a, a good citizen, a good person. Ignore the soulish part. Well, psychologists, go send a psychologist. Sort of a shameful thing, sort of a, you know, a degrading thing, but my soul's so messed up, I can't make it. I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to self-destruct or I'm going to destroy others. I, I got Soulishly, that's all they can do. The real answer is spiritual. I mean, imagine if we had a revival like happened with Billy Graham back in the day. And all of a sudden, every month, there's a, a giant crusade going on with Franklin Graham now and Greg Laurie and, 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 and all these tens of thousands of people are sardine crowded in, no social distancing, maybe mask, I don't know. And they're getting saved and it's being telegraphed around the world. And we had this spiritual revival. How many problems would go away? All the main ones for sure. There's real evil people in the world and they're going to always be evil. Laws do not make good people better. Laws only suppress the evil in all of us. I mean, if I could just be selfish on the freeway and there's no speed limit, you know, it wouldn't be good for you. It would endanger you if I drove the way I really want to. And I can. I'm good. And you get 30% of the people thinking that way, um, there'd be a lot more deaths, right? So... We need to stop being told to not look at things spiritually. That's naive. That's like mentally deficient. You bunch of Christians, that's the problem. You don't use your brain. No, the opposite. Through the creation, the Bible says no man's going to have an excuse because it's so incredibly pronounced that somebody had to create this amazing place. If you think about evolution, you've got this goo, and out of that you get the first single cell. Wouldn't everything just sort of be gray and dark and muddy? How do you get bright colors, beautiful smells, incredible beauty? Because wouldn't it have been better for that creature to be able to just be gray like everything around him? Wouldn't he have a better chance of survival? But in the midst of the gray, if he popped out a single cell organism growing and it's bright red, probably not going to do too well. So how is it we have such beauty, such variety oh, of plants, of trees, of all kinds of insects, of fruits, of human beings, such variety. I love Chuck Smith. He, he says that he went to high school for billions of years. 
Because when he first got to high school, the world was a billion years old. The time he graduated, it was 10 billion years old. <laughs> it's a spiritual building, guys. You want to be happy? Live life in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Think in the spirit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God's spirit lives in you, and it can have zero effect in your earthly world. That's why it says in Galatians 5, you also who have the Holy Spirit in you now must walk in the Spirit. Paul's going to say later in Ephesians, we need to pray daily. We're filled with the Spirit to have power to be bold. So it's spiritual, and that's where our soul is healed. That's how we are lights and salt and effective in the world, and everything flows. As we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all this earth stuff, what we're going to eat and drink and wear and what's going to happen tomorrow, God will take care of the earth stuff. Because you're walking in the spirit and you're being so effectual in the spirit realm, God's not going to let this earth stuff hinder you from doing the mission he has for you. It's a life in the spirit. The woman at the well, she's like, hey, you, you, you Jews sort of have cut us Samaritans out and, and we believe it's at this this uh, well of Jacob up in the mountains is where the real place to worship is. And Jesus said in John 4, 21, hey, the day's coming. It won't be in this mountain, nor will it be in Jerusalem where God's going to be desired to be worshiped. He ends this in verse 24, says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him, what? In spirit and in truth. We could take a while and talk about truth. We need to walk in light as he is in the light. We need to have a submitted, humble heart to him. But it's in the spirit that we worship him. So we see that we are the temple, the place of God where his spirit dwells. We are priests. Revelation 1.6 says he's made us kings and priests to God the Father, to whom glory and dominion. All of us are priests here. Jesus is our high priest, but we're all priests. And as priests, we're to come together and offer sacrifices to God. It's sacrificial hearing a sermon, even though I'm incredibly funny and interesting. I, I, you know, for you guys, it's like, you know, pretty sweet. But nevertheless, there's, there's a discipline because I go way too long. And then also we offer again the sacrifices. What are they? We read in Hebrews 13, 15. The sacrifices of our lips. Worship is hard sometimes, isn't it? Because our bodies don't want to sing always. Our bodies don't want to clap. We, it's humbling to lift our hands and, and say, I, I surrender, I submit. And look at me, I'm being, being a holy roller. I'm being Pentecostal here. I got my hands lifted up. But all those things Christ says to do in his scriptures. Well, Lord, we come before you now. And we ask that we would understand these spiritual things in the spirit by the power of your spirit. That we would have a life in the spirit. Your spirit dwelling in us, we thank you, but you tell us that now it has to be with our will that we walk in the spirit, live a life in the spirit, that the fruits of the spirit flow from us. We need to seek the power of the Spirit, like they did on the day of Pentecost, that we could be lights and salt and a witness in this world. We are leaky vessels. We get filled up, and we got to get filled up again and again and again because we're in a world that is attacking us. We're in a world that attacks your truths. There's deviants always trying to change the doctrine you have laid down, the truth about you. They want to change that truth so they can believe something different that would give them permission to live a life that's not consistent with your scripture. Right now, if you're here and, and you're saying, man, I get it today. There's so many things, but I, I get it. And I find myself right now needing to ask God to forgive me. I right now need to ask God as I humble myself before him that he would Touch me and heal me. I want to rededicate my life. Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, heal me. I want to be a man of God, a woman of God after your own heart who do all your will and I haven't been. 
Forgive me, Lord, for not seeing the world around me spiritually like you want me to. Lord, I want to give my body as a living, holy sacrifice, not for my will, but for your will. Not to please myself, but to be servants of everybody else. Just like you, Jesus, let me give my body as a, 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 that I would not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life and my body as a sacrifice, a blessing to everybody else. If you're here today and you're not a believer, just cry out in your heart, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive my sin through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection. I believe that you have conquered my sin. You can wipe out all my sin and the judgment of that sin and, and make me white as snow by your blood, by the power of your cross. Lord, I, I believe in you now. There it is. He's received you. He's written your name in the book of life. All of heaven rejoices. In Jesus' name, amen.